0: Heavenly Father, as we approach your word, we're, we're really zeroing in on two verses, but they are meaty, and they are deep, and they are um, in some ways very clear, and in some ways very complicated, and, but we know because it's your word they are immensely helpful, and so I ask that you would give us um, clarity of mind, you'd give us energy, you'd, you'd minimize or hush distractions around us. Whether that's just our, our, our heads managerially sorting things in our heads of, that we have to accomplish. You just give us a moment right now that, that we can just sit here and pause. That the world doesn't need us to respond to an email. It doesn't need us to text. It doesn't need us to, 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 to be distracted. That God, you, you are working. The whole world coheres in Christ that we can just receive this time as a, as a gift to hear from you. So I ask that you would do that for us as we come to your word, that we hear from you. Above all things that we ask during this time, we ask that we would leave this, this service more impressed with King Jesus. It's in his name that we pray. Amen. Well, wherever you join us from, if you're, if you're able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word? We we'll begin in verse 5 of chapter 1, just to give some context as we look at verses 1 and 2. This is God's holy But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. Feel free to grab a seat. will give you a brief summary of where we were last week um, in verses five through, through 10, it, verse five really lays out a foundational statement where the rest of First John, that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. And then it goes on and it says that, that one of the marks of, of a Christian is that they're going to walk in the light because God is in the light. And yes, an, another mark of a Christian is that as they walk in the light, they're still going to sin. And there's this back and forth reality of like we're trying to, by God's grace, look more like Jesus, and yet we still fall short of that, and yet the blood of Jesus is still enough to cleanse us in an ongoing way for forgiveness. And we just see this back and forth struggle. This is a common struggle. This is something that every Christian is a part of. It's a defining mark of a Christian is not that they don't sin, it's that they don't want to sin. It's not that they don't sin, it's that they struggle against sin. It's a common struggle, and the common part of that is really important. In, in verses 1 and 2 here, this, the, we, we might miss it, but it says to you, you know, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin, but the you is plural. It's not an individual you. It's a, it's a it's common you, and we actually see that all the we's that happen in verses 6 and following. It's one of the reasons I want to read it, that this is we. This is us. If you're a Christian, you're included in this common struggle. I said this last week but but two of the dreams that i have for our church as we try to live out our faith in the shadow of the cross of jesus christ to look more like jesus that we would have at least these two things that the church would become the first place that you confess your sin not the last so sadly and understandably in our common struggle we, we, we fear and worry about bringing our sin to, to, to the church. And, and I, I would love our church and our common struggle to be an uncommon church in this, that we would be the first place that you'd want to do this. At the appropriate level, with the appropriate people, whether it's in your discipleship groups or gospel communities or just friends or wherever that is, that this would be the first place that you'd confess him, because you know that we are in this together, that I'm a sinner in need of grace stumbling towards glory second thing was this, that we would be able to be um, open and unafraid as we live out our faith together. Open and unafraid as we try to do what, what the, the clear command of verse 2 is, I write these things so you may not sin, that we'd be able to be open and unafraid in that. Something I say to my kids all the time, you know, I, I love you, I adore you, I'm so glad you're mine, all, the, all those things, but something I say to my, ki- my kids regularly and frequently is something like this. The, the thing I care most about is not the wrong things you, that you might do, but it's the wrong things that you might do that I don't know about. Because I can't help what I don't know. Like I want them, I'd ra- I tell them, I'd rather have you tell me the thing that you did that you're afraid to tell me than to keep it hidden. I'd rather, I'd rather know I don't, you don't, the thing that makes me most worried is not even the the sin you might do, but the the stuff that's happening that you're not telling me because I just can't help. I can't protect you. I can't guide you. I can't lead you back to the grace of Jesus as you sit under that. I was thinking about this with um, Dane Burgess on staff as the family life director. He was talking with someone, it was a number of years ago. They were newer to our church and he had invited them to his gospel community. And this person came in at the GC. They were having a, it was a night where they're having a party. They're just eating uh, and drinking together. Um, And there was some, there was some beer there. And it was interesting because this person that came that was new to our church, asked Dane after, said, uh, you know, I I was, it was great. It was so good to be there. I was just wondering, like, you know, you had beer there, you know, like what happens if somebody comes and they get drunk? And Dane's response was, well, then I would, I would drive them home to make sure they're safe, and I'd call them the next day to see how they're doing and if they want to talk about it and how it can help. And his response was saying, like, I, I, if, I, if it doesn't happen, then we don't know, and it just stays in darkness. The idea is we can be open and afraid because this text says the Father or God is light. We want to be light, and yet we still sometimes stumble in the darkness. We can just be open and afraid in our common struggle. I pray in an uncommon church, and here's what's crucial To be a place where we confess our sins, to be a place where we walk out our faith in front of one another, the way we treat each other, the way we handle each other as we walk is massively important. If my kids actually hear what I say and they come to me and they tell me, okay, dad, you said that you'd rather know that when they tell me, my response is everything. In our church, if we're saying we wanna be the first place you confess, then when it happens, our response is, is everything or almost everything. How we respond to each other as works in progress really, really matters. So, in light of that, what I want to do is now go into verse one and take that last phrase we are works in progress. That phrase is so important. I write these things, little children, so that you may not sin. We're not perfect, but we're also not stuck. First John says this over and over again. We're, we're not perfect, but we're not stagnant. That As followers of Christ, we're learning to walk like Christ, and we still struggle. We struggle against sin. We struggle with sin. We struggle because we sin. We battle at all these things, we're, but we're not stuck. We're going to grow. You know, one thing I started asking, I was looking at verse 1. My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. One of the questions I had is, why do you even need to write that? Like, don't we already already know that we're not supposed to sin? It seems like everybody, even non-Christians, people that have never been around a church say, that's all you Christians ever talk about, stop sinning. So why would John have to write this back to a collection of house churches? Why would he even take up time to say, I'm writing these things so you don't sin. And I actually think there's some really big reasons why we have to write that. I think there's some enemies to the gospel, some common enemies to the grace of God that, that begin to to come up against us in our walk with, with Christ, why we need commands, this reminder to not sin. And it hits us from a couple different ways. And I'll give you two of these really big enemies. One of them is called legalism, and the other one is called antinomianism. I'm, we could preach multiple sermons just on those phrases. So I'm going to try to, I'm going to try to define them briefly so we can see how it might derail us or deter us or harm us as we're trying to walk out our faith. Legalism is this. It's the belief that we earn or keep God's favor by what we do. Little children, I I write these things so that you may not sin. It would be the belief that, okay, if I don't sin, then I'm earning God's favor. I'm keeping God's favor by my performance. Legalism is anything like that. I love the way Tim Keller defines it. He says it this way, legalism is looking to something besides Jesus Christ in order to be acceptable and clean before God. See, one of the things that could really hurt us as we take a command like this seriously, that we write these things so you may not sin, is that we think that our walk is what determines God's love, or our walk determines our status, or our walk determines how God handles us in terms of being clean or unclean. But sometimes we flip to this other side. The error and danger of legalism isn't the only thing to watch out for when we actually talk about obedience. There's this, we we could say, some people would say legalism and license. Um, I'm gonna do legalism and what's called antinomianism or anti-law, that the law of God, the commands of God have no bearing on the life of a follower of Christ. It, right, rightly, there, there's, there's a desire behind this antinomianist. to say the grace of Jesus is so grand and so wonderful. We don't want to mess it up by talking about our obedience. The problem is this text talks about our obedience. We so often jump from the ditch of legalism into the ditch of antinomianism. I, Nick Batzig um, defines antinomianism like this. He says, antinomianism that would be a good Scrabble word for you, antinomianism is the intentional or unintentional denying or setting aside of God's law in the life of the believer in the name of grace. I think it's a great definition, the intentional or unintentional. It's, we set aside the law of God in the life of the believer, that there's no rightful use of God's commands in the life of a Christian, all in the name of grace. Simply, we could define it like a saved by grace, So it really doesn't matter how we live. I think the way 1 John defines sin can be helpful for us battling against antinomianism. 1 John 3, 4 defines sin like this. Everyone who makes a practice of sinning also practices lawlessness. And then, really simple phrase, sin is lawlessness. Lawlessness anti antilaw anti-law. This is saying sin is lawlessness. When we go back to verse 1 of chapter 2, I'm writing these things so that you may not live lawless. You know, don't avoid the trappings of legalism by rolling your ankle in the ditch of lawlessness. Um, both of these are real thieves to so the gospel. Legalism minimizes the forgiveness that's found in Jesus alone. Antinomianism shrinks the power of the gospel that doesn't merely forgive us but offers us a life of transformation. have been working through a book um, recently, a kind of a book and actually a, an online course called Business Made Simple by Donald Miller. And there's 60 entries and each of the entries is two or three pages uh, with like five to seven minute videos um, on h- how, do you, how do you be a value-driven professional? How do, you, how do you lead well? How do you lead with character and, and, and vision and direction? Just trying to always sharpen my skills and really practical stuff. Day 10 was on having a, a growth mindset. And each of these videos in the book, it always ends with this little blurb that says, here's the tip of the day. So here's the tip of the day on... Um, Having a growth mindset versus a fixed mindset. He says this He says, a value driven professional approaches the world with a growth mindset, believing they were designed to grow and get better in every area of life. I started thinking about how would I apply this in light of verses like this. I write these things so that you may not sin, or we go back up God is light, and we're trying to walk is light. Let's apply this to the Christian life. We might say it this way, a Christian approaches the world with a growth mindset, believing they were designed to grow and look more like Jesus in every area of life. That's part of the intention that John is trying to get with the passages like this, to say like, little children, I'm writing these things so that you might not sin, that you might grow. Scott Saul's Does this beautiful? This is a growth mindset in in the in the shadow of grace, (laughs) having been declared forgiven, perfect, and loved in God's sight. You are free to pursue obedience to God's law. You pursue obedience, not and this is key, right? Think of legalism and antinomianism. You pursue obedience not as a way to earn His favor, but to start becoming the healthiest, most alive version of yourself. This is totally different than legalism that turns our obedience into the grounds and the cause of God's love and acceptance and is totally in defiance to antinomianism. antinomianism. And really, our culture at large, or even our friends that say sin doesn't matter, sin won't really hurt you don't need to really worry about how you live or maybe even the cynicism of our culture that says that change isn't even possible the assumption throughout first john which i take as a massive encouragement in light of all of what christ has done is that you can change and it's god's grace that fuels it and it's god's grace that covers where we don't change little children i'm writing these things so that you may know you can change in Christ, let me give you kind of a summary. If I was going to give one summary statement of this entire sermon, and we're going to get to more of these parts here in a minute, but we would say something. I would say something like this: In Christ, we have nothing to prove, we have nothing to earn, we have nothing to fear, and we do have something more to become. So what I'm going to do is I want to take two reasons, to, and we could do more than this. I want to take two reasons from this text to take the command to not sin. Um, really seriously and soberly um, and invitationally. One of them begins at the very first part of verse one, and then we'll take one from part of verse two, but this little phrase, my little children. It sets the tone for the command. This isn't a harsh statement. This is is from from a a grandpa-aged fatherly figure back to a collection of house churches he says, my little children. And we see that phrase seven different times in 1 John, and, and it's this, this diminutive use of the word child. It, it, it's little children. It's little children. It's a term of endearment and affection and longing. It's also a term of, of, of appropriate authority. He's saying, as, as a spiritual father to you, I'm inviting you to a way of flourishing. It's giving leadership and direction and guidance. I was working in a parking lot on this sermon a couple of days ago. As my one of my kids was at a um, was at an appointment for something, and so I sit in there. This mom pulls in, and I watch her open up uh, the sliders on the minivan, and she helps her three look like a three year old daughter get out, and held her hand in the parking lot, and she grabs her one year old son and holds the son in her hand, and I just watched this kind of beautiful helplessness of these kids be led by. This mom who obviously just wanted to protect them and lead them and keep them safe. One of the things I kept thinking is just how much we have to learn that we don't yet know. That's what John's saying. He says, little children, I, I, I'm better at living than you are. I have some ways to help you. I, I, like, I've been walking with Christ for decades. Let me show you how to walk. I love watching Pete Carlson, our community life pastor. He's uh, a newer dad and, and just had their, him and his wife Rachel just had their, their second, second son and he's got these two little boys, Emmett and Warren and I love watching Pete with his, his boys because I know Pete so well and he, he, he just loves his sons. He adores his sons, he wants to protect his sons, he wants to guide his sons because he wants to raise his sons to be mighty men of God. There's little children. This command to not sin, is, it's a command to flourish. It's, we're, we're not trying to restrict. When God commands us to walk in lawfulness, he's not trying to restrict us. He's trying to liberate us to be that uh, which, which, only he, which we only can be as we walk in conformity to our design. My son Judson, when he was about five, we'd moved into a new house. I'm sitting in the living room and all of a sudden I see my wife just just like I it was like she like jumped it over the the kitchen island, out the slider, and I just saw her grab Judson, and and I was like, what happened? She goes, well, I looked down, and Judson was standing on top of the railing about ready to jump up off of our deck on our second-story house, I mean, we're talking, there's like a 15-foot drop down to this kind of like hillside, and I remember, I was like, Judson, what? I was kind of of proud of him just for being so courageous, but I'm also really concerned. I'm like, what are you doing? He's like, Dad, I just wanted to see what it's like. Now this is not sin. What he did wasn't sin, but it would have been very destructive. The command to not sin, it's a guardian to keep us from hurting ourselves. Because in some ways, we're just little children. So it's one major motivation. We understand our approach and that God's command to walk in lawfulness and to walk in light is to try to help us grow up, to help us mature, and to protect us. Protect those around us. Let me give you another really major reason to, um, to really care about your sin. This one maybe is a little more serious and a little more sobering for us. And we get it from this one word here in verse 2. And these are not the only motivations for sure to try to pursue holiness and to walk with Christ and to battle sin. This word, propitiation. There's a lot of debate around this word in this passage. Um, uh, I've studied it so many times over the years, read whole books on this word, whether it's the right translation or not, whether it's the the right word and what it means. I'm going to define it here in a minute. I just want to let you know that this is a very debated word. You know, some of you might even have Bible translations that use something like this, like instead of propitiation, it would say that which atonement was made or the means by which sin is forgiven. Some translations would substitute the word expiation for propitiation. So expiation, the the removal of, of sin or the, or there's cleansing for defilement, which is absolutely a biblical idea. But I'm, I'm going to argue for, I'm just going to tell you, I'm not even going to argue. I'm not going to try to convince you in this sermon why propitiation is the best word. In my opinion, I'm just going to tell you it is, but what I want to do is, is tell you why I think it's most faithful. I think it's faithful to the context. I think it's faithful to the Bible. I want to tell you why it matters so much for our desire to obey God. Um, I was talking about this word with uh, Isaac. He's one of our interns who's, constantly serving our church in just amazing ways. He was in our facility. He was cleaning up the commons. And, and so I started talking about this sermon. I was talking about, I brought up this word. And he says, hey, you know, you know what's kind of funny about that, Rob, is my, my grandma, who's just a sweet guy, I just love this woman, says, my grandma just assigned me a project. She just assigned me an essay. She said, I have to write a paper on the word propitiation. And I was like, you go, Marianne. I was like, that was awesome to hear like that he got assigned a word study on propitiation because it's a massive word. It's a huge word. I love this story about Dr. Murray Harris. I saw this in a blog post recently. He, and he, uh, he was doing the staff devotional at uh, Trinity Evangelical Divinity School. So there were all these doctorates sitting there. And he walks in and he's doing the staff devotional and he begins this series of questions. What is the most important book in the universe. And now, whenever I hear this stuff, you know, we do like most important, all these things, and we're talking about the Bible and all that, just just put it through the lens, okay, just track with me. What is the most important book in the universe? The Bible. What is the most important book in the Bible? You'd say Romans. What is the most important chapter in Romans? Romans chapter three. What is the most important paragraph in Romans three? Verses 21 through 26. What is the most important verse in the most important paragraph? Verse 25. And then he goes on and says, Which word is the most important word in the most important verse in the most important paragraph? Propitiation. And here is the punchline from, from the blog post it says, Therefore, The most important word and the most important verse and the most important paragraph and the most important chapter and the most important book within the most important book in the universe is propitiation, worthy of our reverent contemplation. It's a word that doesn't get a lot of love in our culture, but it's worthy of our reverent contemplation. Let me give you a very simple definition of propitiation, then I'm gonna give you a longer one. Leon Morris, in a book I would commend to you, the apostolic preaching of the cross, says it like this, he says, propitiation means this, the averting of wrath by the offering of a gift. A longer context of that definition is this, propitiation is understood, it's a little bit longer, I'll try to read it kind of slow, propitiation is understood as springing from the love of God. Among the heathen, propitiation was thought of as an activity whereby the worshiper was able himself to provide that which would induce a change of mind in the deity. In plain language, he bribed his God to be favorable to him. When the term was taken over into the Bible, these unworthy and crude ideas were abandoned And only the central truth expressed by the term was retained, namely that propitiation signifies the averting of wrath by the offering of a gift. But in both Testaments, the thought is plain that the gift which secures the propitiation is from God himself. He provides the way whereby men may come to him. Thus, the use of the concept of propitiation witnesses to two great realities. And this is, listen to these, these two great realities. The one, the reality and seriousness of the divine reaction against sin. And the other, the reality and the greatness of the divine love, which provided the gift which should avert the wrath from me. One of the questions you might ask, and I think a lot of the debate around translations, I'd love to to say that it always comes from just a sitting under the Word of God to try to get it as accurate as possible. I think something has to do with, with an allergy that we have towards the word propitiation. This allergy we have towards thinking of God as having wrath. We like God of love. We like God of tenderness and God of provision and God of miracles, but a God who has wrath. We don't like that idea. We don't like the idea that we might be deserving of of wrath. But you know what we do like? We like the idea of justice. We like the idea of justice particularly, I would maybe even say this, we like the idea of justice when we are the offended party and we want justice or or a cause or a, a people that we really care about is experiencing injustice. We want justice for them. I read this illustration uh, recently, to try to get us to get the sense of why propitiation and, and, and the, the just anger towards injustice is such a right thing for God, and and they, they it was this illustration where it says, okay, imagine there's two coworkers, they're working together and they decide to start dating, and so Mark takes Sally out, and Mark during the date decides to get tanked, he gets he gets drunk, and and they get into a car, and Mark dry is driving Sally home and, and on the way home he swerves off the road they get into a big accident the car's rolling over and hours later they mark wakes up um, from being unconscious in a hospital and the first thing he asks is he's, he's like what happened is Sally okay and they said she's not okay she's paralyzed can i talk to her no she doesn't want to talk to you what can i do to make her right you can't do anything to make her right now, eventually, Sally files a civil lawsuit and says, I'm, I'm, I, I, can't, I can't use my legs anymore. Uh, you're taking away my means of income. There's all of this calamity and trauma in my life. And so I want you to picture Mark and Sally are there. And, and Mark is the defendant. And, and there's a judge there. And the, the case is made of what's happened. The toxicity reports there. All the, everything is lined up perfectly. And Mark says, but I'm so sorry. Can't you just forgive me? And the judge says, it's good enough for me. None of us would be okay with that. None of us would say, like, oh, what a righteous judge. He said he was sorry. I love the idea of justice. And I love that we want a God of justice. But if we want a God of justice, it means he's going to have indignation at injustice. Sin is lawlessness. Some would define it as cosmic treason. Psalm 711 says this. It says, God is a righteous judge and a God who feels indignation every day. John Stott, he says it this way. God's holy antagonism to sin must somehow be turned away if sin is to be forgiven in the sinner restored. And it's part of like the bad news and the condition and the wrath of God that is upon us upon us apart from Jesus Christ is what makes the forgiveness that we have in Jesus that much sweeter. Propitiation highlights even more, um, even more than just even the right response to injustice. One of the things is we talk about little children, I'm writing these things so you may not sin and how propitiation can be helpful for that. The idea that God has anger towards our sin is that sin is not just about an injustice, that it's it highly personal It's highly personal. Let me give you an illustration that I think both helps a bit with that and also if we don't hear it rightly will hurt. And it's just parenting. This is very generic. Every parent knows what it's like to give their energy and their affection and their time and their resources and their prayer and their concern only to be sinned against. And when that happens, there's an indignation. There's a, there, there, there's a not just a general, not 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 just a general sense of that. That didn't feel. There's a personal offense, and typically, the deeper the relationship, the more the offense. You now we can all relate to that hurt. The, the problem for us and where I say, like, I think that helps to give us some sense of it. But I think where it hurts is that our angry responses are all, often very sinful. They're very, they're very unrighteous. They're, they're, they're not measured. God is never unrighteously angry. It's always perfectly in step with the reality of the situation. You know, part why this is so helpful and part of it with getting propitiation or struggle with sin is to think about it as personal. Sin is not some concrete action against some abstract spiritual force. This is personal rebellion before our Father in heaven. I read something like this recently and just summarize it for you. It says, Christ's death doesn't merely remove the moral and ethical stain of sin. It deals with the very real and personal offense of our sin. Part of what helps us with that is to ask this question, what is the difference between a Christian that struggles with sin and a non-Christian? I'm sure there's tons of overlap. There's probably lots of different ways we could nuance it. But here's the difference. There's a vertical element. That fundamentally, when we sin as followers of Christ, it's not that we're not... The the people we want to be in the sight of others, we care about that. It's not that we've just harmed others through our actions, it's that we care about that. Is that there's some place where there's a sorrow that penetrates our souls that says we've offended our Father in heaven? Propitiation is a way of feeling that anger towards that offense. Behind the struggle is sadness and hurt. We long to worship our Father in heaven rightly. And when we don't walk in the light, we realize we haven't. You know, if there's anyone in my life and you've heard me talk about her a thousand times, I probably will never stop, that I would have longed to, to live honorably before and to follow her lead. It was my, my grandma Betty, just an amazing, precious, kind, tender woman. She never demanded this from me. I just longed to do it. There's this beautiful phrase, this Latin phrase, Coram Deo, what it means to be for the face of God. When we live this call, little children, I I write these things that you may not sin is that we live day by day, every day before the face of God who has holy indignation towards our sin. You know, again, Morris in these two things, he says, propitiation helps us see the seriousness of the Father's reaction to our sin. But listen to this, listen to this, because if we just stay there, that is a terrifying place to be or or it's at least not the place this text wants us to stay. The seriousness of the Father's reaction to our sin, that is a motivation to walk in light. But listen to this, and the lavishness of his love to provide the solution. That's the focus now on these other parts of the verses. That's, that let's focus on that solution. Now, what I want us to do is just pause and consider the flow in verse 1. Little children, I write these things so that you may not sin. But, or you could translate actually, and, and if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. Like, why would John, I ask this question, why would John write that if the whole goal was so they don't sin? Why, it's almost like he's letting them off the hook. It's like he's, he's dialing back the intensity, don't sin, but if you do sin, like try to do good, but you're not going to. I mean, it's that sort of, that sort of rhythm. And I was thinking there's probably lots of answers. We're really hard on ourselves. We're really hard on others. Or for some of us, we, we mess up and we just give up. Let me give you what I think is the textual answer here. Um, I think, and I think it's the bigger one here. In our struggle with sin, we can't lose sight of our Savior. So what he's doing, he says, I want you to, to little children, I write these things to so you, may not sin, but if you do, I want you to get your eyes back on Jesus. You have an advocate. You have an advocate. So we might say this, when we do sin, which we will. The most important work for any of us to do is this: to remember who you have, or may we say, remember who has you. Jesus Christ, the righteous, wrath-bearing advocate. Um, this word, advocate. We're going to do this quickly. Okay, we're going to do this quickly. The word advocate is is really the defense attorney. You know, you're on trial. They're there to defend you, to make the case. Um, you know, when we talk about this, one point I want to bring in this is really important as we talk about advocacy, particularly in the context of propitiation uh, 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 and a holy indignation and the need for that to be appeased, is that we can, say, we can think like, okay, Jesus loves me, this, Jesus is gracious, God the Father's mean. God the Father is wanting to stiff-arm me. And actually, John helps us. First John helps us because we see another use of propitiation in 1 John 4.10. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that He loved us and sent His Son to be the propitiation for our sins. Do you hear it? You hear it? it's not that God loves us after Christ was sent us. That Jesus Christ came because Jesus loves us and the Father loves us, and He needs to deal with our sin problem that we might be reconciled back to Him. The very motivation of it was He already set His love and affection on us, and so He sent His Son for us. So don't don't pit Jesus against the Father in this. I'll give you another clarification here, a defense attorney, what they do is they argue the merits of the case, but the problem is before a holy God and reality of our lives, there is no case to make. What's glorious is Jesus is not arguing our merits, but his. Jesus is not looking at our list us say, well, they did this, right? Yeah, but, but look at all the good they did. Yeah, I know they screwed up here, and, uh, but, but look here. He says, look at me. He just stands before us and he says, look at me. He's presenting something else, namely his righteousness. And that's what this text says. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. I love this line, Jesus Christ the righteous. I love that in a collection of verses that is talking about us walking in light and us obeying, that the overarching emphasis is the righteousness of Christ, the blood of Christ that cleanses us for sin, the righteousness of Christ that allows us to stand before the holiness of God. I think Carl Barth said said something like, "We, we must not take our sin more seriously than the grace of God in Christ. As you think about the righteousness of Christ, how does it benefit us? How how does it stand as the case that's made before us? It's just simply saying that the perfections of Jesus' life are credited to us. Some of the illustrations that are used is, you know, have you ever collected baseball cards and on one side was the picture of the player and on the back side was all of their stats? That when we are are enveloped by the righteousness of Christ, it's like our picture on one side and you flip it over and it's just Jesus' stats on the back. Or it's like someone else, this would be illegal, but someone else taking the SAT for you and you ace it. The advocacy of Jesus is the continual application of his righteous life for us and his death for us, his propitiation for us. I love how rankin Wilborn says, he says, God, I love this is a beautiful line, God does not love us to the degree that we are like Christ that's a good word as we talk about fighting sin and walking in light and trying to obey. God does not love us to the degree that we are like Christ. Rather, God loves us to the degree that we are in Christ. And that's always 100%. Pause and consider what all of this is saying in our, our walk and our desire to walk in light and to not sin a few years ago, we did a series in Romans 8. and the, the first verse of Romans 8, is, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those in Christ Jesus. This is why we can confess. This is why we can be open and unafraid. Like, we have no condemnation. And I tried to present to our church, I said, I want this to be like a banner, a motto over our lives. And so if you take verse 1 or verse 2 of Romans, 8, we might summarize that there is no condemnation. There's just transformation. In Christ, we have nothing to prove, we have nothing to earn, we have nothing to fear and we have something to become and, and if we tether this Christ Jesus the righteous we have his righteous life but in this text we also have his substitutionary death again propitiation and i'm not going to do a ton with this more we already talked about it a little bit but what i want to try to do and i know i'm over time i know i am and i knew i would be and i'm asking that god would give you three more minutes of endurance propitiation pulls together some massive threads in the bible And go back to the sacrificial system in the Old Testament, particularly places like Leviticus chapter 16. You want to go read some stuff that's going to make this word sweeten and deepen for you. Go read Leviticus 16 and go read the book of Hebrews. And what you see in that, in Leviticus 16 is this day called the Day of Atonement, where the high priest would go as an advocate and he would clothe himself in new white garments and he would purify himself and make all of these offerings and he would go and he would, he would take two different offerings, two different animals to, to try to atone for the sins of God's people. And he would take this one animal and he would, he, he would slaughter and he would take the blood and he would take it into what was known as the Holy of Holies. And we would go to the Holy of Holies, the very center place was like the courtroom of God, where his holiness was manifest. And in the Holy of Holies, it was filled up with incense because uh, we couldn't see, you know, this person couldn't see God and actually walk out alive. They actually would tie a rope around the high priest who was going to the Holy of Holies in case he dropped down They could pull him out. He would only go once a year and he would come in after making atonement for his own sin through the shedding of blood, wearing these white garments to try to give some semblance of like set apartness for God. And he would come in and in the middle of the Holy of Holies was what's known as the Ark of the Covenant. On the top of the ark was this thing called the mercy seat. And the mercy seat also can be translated the propitiatory place. That what would happen is the, the high priest would take this blood of the offering, of the sacrifice, and he would take it and he would sprinkle on top of the mercy seat. And the idea was is that God looked down and instead of seeing what was inside the ark, which was the commandments, his law... And seeing how he had broken it, what he would see is the blood. And then his, his, his anger, his indignation, would, his holiness, and his justice would all be satisfied in that place because there's been the shedding of blood and an offering has been made. And then favor would be granted to the people. It says ultimately all of those things were just shadows and signposts to Christ who came not as a high priest and an advocate who needed to make atonement for his own sins or needed garments to try to wrap him in righteousness is Jesus Christ the righteous. And he didn't go into the holy of holies. He went upon the cross as the perfect advocate, as the perfect righteous one, as the, the perfect offering where he was hung on a tree where he became cursed for all that trust in him, and that's why on the cross, Jesus cried out, there's darkness that comes over the land, and he just says, my God, my God, why are you forsaking me? It's because the Father's wrath was poured on him and not on you, and not on me, and not on anyone that trusts in Christ. I write these things so that you may not sin, but if you do sin, you have an advocate, Jesus Christ, the righteous, wrath-bearing offering. As these verse go on, it says, not just for ours only, but for the whole world. What it's saying is that anyone that will come will be welcomed in through favor, or in favor through the work of Christ. So come. It's only in ever in Christ that we have nothing to prove, nothing to earn, nothing to fear and something more to become let's pray oh heavenly father this is a weighty text because you are a wonderful god who does dazzling work we thank you that the command to not sin is not to restrict us but to finally help us soar and to flourish and we thank you for the motivations that you give us to do that It is little children who want to grow up. And we also see that where we sin is not just a transactional reality or failure, but a personal offense. And we thank you for King Jesus who came and lived the life that we were meant to live and didn't, and then died the death that we deserve, and yet he took. So I pray, I pray that you would grant us the faith to believe that, whether it's for the thousandth time or for the first time. That we would turn from our attempts to make ourselves right with you and realize we can't and we would cry out for Christ to be our righteous advocate. Trusting fully in what your word says, that we would then be forgiven, loved, adored, adopted, cared for, and a billion other promises that come all because of Christ. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.